Chapter thirty two of St. Charles Borromeo, a sketch of the reforming cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter thirty two. What went you out to see? What went you out to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, they that are in costly apparel and live delicately are in the houses of kings. Luke chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Though all sorts and conditions of men went forth to meet Charles as he passed from village to village, yet his progress was not quite a triumphal one. In Mosulco, the capital of the Mesolcine Valley, his efforts were unavailing. The greater part of the population refused to renounce their heirs, and indeed threatened to declare war against Spain if he did not withdraw. Philip II, Henry III, Charles Emmanuel, gave him their support as far as possible, but the greater part of Switzerland lay outside their jurisdiction. Therefore Charles was reluctantly compelled to return once more to Bellinzona. He made this well-disposed and truly Catholic city his headquarters, sending from there Jesuits and Oblates not only into the Mesolcine Valley, but onto Coere. The Grison League was holding a diet there, and he sent envoys to explain to them the deplorable condition of the inhabitants of their cantons, and to implore them to permit the people to have worthy pastors to minister to their spiritual necessities, even though these priests were foreigners, and he strongly urged that a law should be passed forbidding the people to give shelter to apostate priests. Although most of the members of the Diet were either Calvinists or followers of Zuinglius, they received his envoys courteously, and acceded to his request about the harboring of apostates but they refused to allow priests from other lands to undertake the cure of souls. While at Bellinzona, the heretical natives of the Rhenish valleys sent a secret deputation to beg him to visit their cantons, promising that he should be allowed to celebrate the mysteries of religion, administer the sacraments, and preach in public. The energetic cardinal longed to take up his staff and go forth to preach the gospel to these children who sat in the outer darkness, yet hungered and thirsted for the light. But there were weighty reasons why he could not grant their request one of the principal being that neither he nor any of his priests could speak German. He, however, treated the envoys with his usual courteous kindness, and promised as soon as he could possibly manage it to accede to their wishes. Christmas was approaching, so he was obliged to return to Milan. Before leaving Bellinzona, he sent his confessor, Father Adorno, S.J., and several other religious to Chiavenna and the neighboring villages of the Valtellini, this he did for the comfort and spiritual sustenance of the Catholics of the district. But the cabinet ministers swore before the Diet that the reforming cardinal had not only endeavored to reform the faith, but also had tampered with the loyalty of their people. They loudly accused him of trying to induce inhabitants of the Mesolcine and the Valtellini valleys to renounce their allegiance to the Diet and become subjects of the King of Spain. According to their infamous insinuations, the saintly and high-minded cardinal was an intriguer and a hypocrite, cloaking his nefarious designs for the extension of the power of his king under the garb of religious enthusiasm and zeal for souls. The result of the intrigues of the Calvinist ministers was that Father Ordono, S.J., and some of his companions were imprisoned. They, however, were soon released. Early in 1584, Charles held a conference of the archpriests and visitors of the diocese. He entertained them in the archiepiscopal palace with his usual lavish hospitality, for though he lived himself on water and dried fruits, yet he invariably treated his guests to the very best of everything. Hospitality was one of his favorite virtues, and wherever he was he always practiced it in the highest degree. 
He was very unwell, suffering from erysipelas in the leg and from other ailments, but the weakness of his body in no way impaired the vigor of his mind. He was compelled to remain in a reclining position, so he lay on a couch in the audience chamber and transacted the business of the meeting with his usual methodical clearness. The object of the conference was to inquire how his rules and regulations had been observed in all the parishes of his diocese. He noted down every article with the answers he received concerning it. In fact, he made a thorough examination into the wants of his diocese, corrected existing abuses, and pointed out to his clergy the surest means to avoid them in the future. Having drawn up a memorial, he got it published, and had it ready for the synod he held in the following April. It contains all the necessary rules and counsels for governing parishes, and he gave it to his clergy as his last offering at this his last synod, for he was convinced he had but a short time to live. What most troubled him at this synod was the intelligence he had received that his efforts to convert the Orisons and the other Swiss cantons were not likely to be crowned with success. His clergy sympathized with him, and many of them volunteered to go forth to evangelize these fair lands. But Charles knew the hour had not come. He foresaw that many years would pass before these wandering sheep would be brought into the fold, and that it would be Francis de Sales, not Charles Borromeo, who would preach to them the truths of the gospel, and have the ineffable joy of converting them from the darkness of heresy. He grew daily more seraphic and angelic, the nearer the hour approached that was to release him from the burden of the flesh. He seemed on fire with divine love, and his superabundant energy increased to such a degree that people looked upon him as a phenomenon. During this, his last synod, he preached several times with marvelous fervor and eloquence. The difficulty of speaking fluently, which he had struggled against more or less all his life, completely disappeared, and he electrified his audience by his burning eloquence. His biographer, Guisiano, describes his soul-stirring discourses in the following vivid words. The cardinal spoke with such warmth and zeal that we felt as though ravished into an ecstasy, and we experienced such interior joy that we easily but firmly resolved to change our manner of life, and to devote ourselves heart and soul to the divine service. As for our saintly cardinal, he was so inflamed with divine love that he appeared to be already in paradise. Therefore his words were powerful and effective, and he spoke as one having authority, for it seemed that, as he drew near his end, Almighty God gave him a foretaste of the beatitude that awaited him. Indeed, his fervor and zeal increased to such a degree that Guiliciano remarks, As a candle, ere it dies out, blazes up with greater brilliancy, so the charity and holiness of our beloved cardinal blazed forth with tenfold splendor the nearer he drew to death. In March he laid the foundation stone of a magnificent church at Rowe, in honor of Our Lady. The edifice was to be on a superb scale, but it was not completed during his lifetime. About the same time he founded a convalescent home for the sick poor to repose in, when discharged in the hospital of Milan. This undertaking was also finished by his immediate successor, Caspar Visconti. The mere enumeration of all the churches, hospitals, convents, and seminaries that owe their origin to the reforming cardinal would fill a volume, and to give a detailed account of each would take a lifetime. How in his short allotted span of forty-six years he contrived to do so much is one of those miracles of superhuman energy and devotion only possible to a great saint. Ordinary mortals must marvel and admire such supernatural power, and certainly can never hope to imitate it. Yet, though we cannot follow the steps of the ascetic archbishop in works of charity or in deeds of magnitude and heroism, 
We can strive like him to do little acts of kindness. We can practice the art of saying and doing pleasant things, and by so doing bring sunshine and peace to many world-weary and poverty-stricken souls. We cannot all be heroes and throw a hemisphere with some great, daring venture, some deed that mocks at fear, but we can fill a lifetime with kindly acts and true. There's always noble service for noble souls to do. Charles never considered his own ease or comfort, and was ready to fly off to the succor of the weak and suffering, even when he himself was bowed down with sickness and fever. The following is but one instance of his loving self-forgetfulness. He had officiated pontifically in the Duomo on the last Sunday in April, 1584, when word was brought to him that Giovanni Delfino, Bishop of Brescia, was dying. Fatigued as he was, he immediately set out for that city, traveling day and night in the hope of being in time to comfort and console his suffragan, Bishop, and himself administer the last sacraments. He reached the patient in time to give him extreme unction, and Giovanni Delfino passed away, having received the last absolution from his beloved Archbishop, who remained beside him until the end. Charles made all the arrangements for and officiated at the funeral, and then returned to Milan, arriving at eight in the morning in time to celebrate Holy Mass on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. He preached, recited the divine office in the Duomo, conducted the procession of the Holy Nail through the city, and wound up with pontifical vespers and compline. His lifelong efforts to suppress King Carnival were crowned with success. During the three weeks that preceded the Lent of 1584, the people, instead of indulging as formerly in profane diversions, devoted the time they had hitherto given to frivolous and often sinful frolics to the service of God. They heard sermons, they followed holy processions, they listened to the sublime Gregorian chant, they went on pilgrimage from church to church, and they, who had been renowned throughout Italy as pleasure-loving and dissipated, were transformed into sanctified, devout, charitable Christians. The reforming cardinal gave thanks to God for the reform he had at last succeeded in effecting. His efforts had not been in vain. Milan was changed, root and branch. Her citizens were the shining lights of Italy, and her archbishop could say with Simeon, Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word, in peace. End of chapter 32